Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. It's not enough to have lived. We should be determined to live for something. Is a quote from Sir Winston Churchill, British statesman, army officer and writer, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during the Second World War. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest, apart from being British, is living a life of purpose, is leading an organisation for a cause, one that will affect one in seven women in their lifetime. Our guest today is Holly Masters, Chief Executive Officer of the McGrath Foundation. The McGrath Foundation raises funds to support people with breast cancer by providing specialist McGrath breast care nurses where they are most needed across Australia. The foundation currently funds 154 nurses who provide essential physical and emotional support, free of charge, to anyone experiencing breast cancer and their families from diagnosis and throughout their treatment. Previously, Holly worked for Estee Lauder Companies, where she held a variety of roles over 12 years, including Vice President General Manager of Clinique Asia Pacific. She has also led brands such as Joe Malone London, Lamer and Moulton Brown across Australia, and co-founded Mission 21, a marketing and communications agency in London. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I am your host, Greg Robinson, managing partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Holly gives us a unique insight into the amazing work done by the McGrath Foundation. From where it all started to how it grew, having supported more than 91,000 individuals and their families over the last 15 years, the inspiring tales of the unsung heroes of the community, and how they'll be painting Australia pink in the upcoming days. Please note that the details mentioned in this podcast were all correct at the time of the recording. But as circumstances change, as they have of recent times, the best place for the latest updates is pinktest.com.au. Before we start the episode, I would like to make an appeal for you to visit their website, mcgrathfoundation.com.au, to find out more about what they do and to support this most worthwhile of causes. So sit back and enjoy Pink for Purpose. Holly, welcome to the show. Fantastic to be here, Greg. Thank you for having me. Holly, as CEO of McGrath Foundation, I guess the first question is, can you talk us through the stats, what breast cancer means to Australians? 
It's quite shocking, really. It's the number one cancer from a female perspective. One in seven women will get breast cancer. What that means, of course, is that every single person that you ever meet will know somebody who has had breast cancer. That means mother, sister, aunt, girlfriend, wife, daughter. It's shocking. The great thing is that actually, because we have very good early detection and amazing treatments here in Australia, honestly, we're one of the world leaders. Okay. You know, 91% of people who are diagnosed with breast cancer are living after five years. And that's a phenomenal outcome and is only as a result of decades of work to make sure we detect people early and we get them good treatment. How does the stats vary between Australia and other parts of the world, Holly? Um, in terms of incidence, we're actually very similar levels. Okay. Um, to kind of put some other numbers around it, um, it's nearly 20,000 women a year, so 55 a day. And one thing I really want to make sure everybody here understands is that men can get breast cancer too. On the average at the moment, it's about 167 a year. So it's not many, but because very few men realize that they can get breast cancer, often it's not detected until much later. And that's a problem because mm. then there's greater complexity. Holly, what actually is the McGrath Foundation? Do you want to talk us through? Yeah, absolutely. The McGrath Foundation is an incredibly special place, very close to my heart, of course. We are 15 years old this year, and we were started 15 years ago by Jane McGrath. And it was really in response to um, her breast cancer diagnosis. She and her friend Tracy um, were working together to understand what that could look like. Glenn was busy playing cricket at that point in time. And when Jane had her second bout of breast cancer, for the first time, she had a breast cancer nurse. And this changed her life. And from that moment, uh, Glenn, Jane and Tracy decided that the foundation needed to have one singular purpose. As we all know in business, focus is critical. So we do one thing and we do it exceptionally well. We fund breast cancer nurses and we do all of their professional development. So we now have 154 breast cancer nurses around the country. We have supported more than 91,000 individuals and their families over the last 15 years. And we have had measurable impacts, both in terms of their health, as well as just how much they get to enjoy life. I'm always interested, but where does the passion, like someone like yourself, where does that passion come from to join a, a, an organization like this? Yeah, I, honestly, I think I've always seen it in my future. So I was very lucky when I was a child. My grandparents um, were very focused on what we could do for the community and the same with my parents. So my granny retrained to teach deaf children when she was in her mid-50s and went back out to central India and for seven years was a headmistress in a school in rural India. And when I was, she came back when I was 14 and then when I was 21, I went out with her and I got to meet all the people that she had impacted. And I suddenly realized, wow, there was this little old lady who I adored, who I used to, you know, make fudge with on a Sunday. And suddenly I went to India and she had had the most transformational impact on a huge number of people's lives. You know, little kindergarten kids in the slums, you know, that she was raising money for. Widows who'd been basically thrown out of their homes, how they were funded. So honestly, it made me realize that one person can make an enormous difference. So I always grew up, not just with my grandparents, also my parents who were involved with International Foster Care Association. My mother worked for Save the Children for a year. And as kids, I remember door knocking for the NSPCC to raise money at the age of eight, nine, ten. So I think that sense of social consciousness was always there. But I felt that in order to have the 
maximum impact, yeah. what I wanted to do was I wanted to make sure that I was really skilled, that I had got a lot of experience and that I could really make a difference when I made that choice. So for me, having a really robust, strong career with a lot of learning and development in the commercial sector mm -hmm. was really critical because I felt that then gave me the right to have the most, to have the biggest impact, if you like, in this social sector. That accent's not from this part of the woods, Holly. What's the, what's the story? <laughs> no, amazing that you detected that, Greg. <laughs> yes, I grew up in the UK. So I was born actually on the edge of London. I've been in Australia now 15 years. I mm -hmm. met my husband over in London. Um, and yes, of course, he dragged me kicking and screaming to Sydney, which I adore. And I feel incredibly fortunate to call this place my home, particularly after the past year, honestly, you yeah. know, when I talked, I've worked for British and American companies for many years and I have friends living all over the world, spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and Asia as well. And honestly, I just thank my lucky stars that I'm in Australia right now. Um, and yes, it's challenging. We are all have had an extraordinary year and I'm not going to use a whole bunch of those words that we've heard way too many times in the last nine months. Um, but I am incredibly lucky to be in the role I'm in despite everything that's happened. My career has been incredibly eclectic and I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned from. I'm a generalist and I started, I've done, I've set up English language schools. I've lived in and taught in boarding schools. I then moved into marketing communications in agency world. I worked for media. I launched financial newspapers. I worked for the Science Museum in London, for BBC Worldwide, doing awards ceremonies, the stories I could tell you from behind the scenes. We're not going to go there today. Um, but, you know, really, throughout all of that, I was always opening doors and having conversations and finding new pathways. So you've got gift to the gab there, Holly? Certainly have. <laughs> um, and in fact, it was actually one of my clients, Estee Lord was one of my clients oh, at the right. agency okay. that I co-founded in London, who said one day, hmm, you don't have a twin, do you? We're looking for somebody. And I was like, well, actually, this is my perfect opportunity. And I joined Estee Lauder in London. And actually, that's when I started working for breast cancer charities. You may not know, but the Estee Lauder company started the Pink Ribbon nearly 20, nearly, sorry, nearly 30 years ago. No, I didn't know that. So the fact that they defined October as Breast Cancer Awareness Month and the Pink Ribbon, um, I was involved with Elizabeth Hurley as the ambassador in London. I did lots of events with her. We did lots of pink lighting of buildings, raising money, uh, selling product, doing PR. So really, I've been working with breast cancer charities for 18 years. Right, okay. It's a long time. But it's good because it's meant that I've really experienced it from the corporate side. And now, of course, I'm on the social sector side. I'm in the charity. So I genuinely understand what it means to have a partnership with corporates. Okay. So you came dragging and kicking all the way over <laughs> here. How did you come across this role? Um, honestly, through a friend. And I, my best roles have always come through my network. I think... The relationships you build over your career are absolutely critical. And that's why for me, you ne I never say no to a conversation. Even if I'm happiest in my job, you know, it doesn't matter what that looks like. I've had four calls in the last 10 days about CEO roles. And my response is always, I'm super happy. I'm happy to have the conversation because you never know who I might know who might also be really good for that. And that's exactly what happened with me. A girlfriend of mine was actually approached about this role through an agency. All right. And she said, you know what? It's not for me, but I know the perfect person. And by the way, she's just finishing her, her stint in Hong Kong and um, may well be open to the conversation. So it was serendipity. 
but I feel incredibly lucky that that happened at that particular moment. Although I had actually promised myself six months off at that point (laughs) and (laughs) that didn't happen, but very grateful to be where I am. What did you walk into? Um... Come on, Ben, tell the truth. Yeah, well, of course, anybody (laughs) going into a new organization as a leader, you know that when you pull the doors open and pull the screen back, what you experience is something maybe a little bit different from what you think you're going to go into. You know, that first 100 days is so critically important, buying yourself enough time to genuinely understand what's going on inside. Um, Honestly, the, the organization was... Externally, incredible reputation, mm-hmm. growing double digit. Honestly, it had come such a long way in such an incredibly short space of time, really batted way above its weight. You know, people thought we were much bigger than we were in terms of turnover. And there are always growing pains. When I first arrived, I used to describe the, um, <laughs> the organization a bit like a teenager. You know, we had incredible DNA, yes. great bone structure. Uh, muscles were a little bit underdeveloped, you know, maybe we didn't always make the best choices, you know, sometimes got out of bed a bit late in the morning, maybe pushed the wrong person occasionally, you know. So for us, it was about saying, we've got this incredible organization. How do I nurture it through to being a young adult? And that's where I feel we are now. So three years later, we're now at young adult status. Still spreading the love then. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And honestly, the more partners we can have, the better. What is it? Is it a charity or what is the other way you describe it these days? People use so many different languages, Mm. so many different forms of language. My chair hates not-for-profit because he says we're not for loss, and I totally agree with that. I tend to really like things like profit for purpose Mm -hmm. because actually we have to really drive as much profit as possible to have the impact that we want to have. I like social impact because it's not just about the immediacy of the service you're delivering, but it's all the intergenerational knock-on effects. You know, you can imagine if a a young woman gets breast cancer and she's a full-time employee along with her husband, they've got a heavy mortgage, two young kids at school. If she now has to give up work and is in six to 12 months of treatment, the impact on those kids their financial situation is enormous. So you're not just looking at the impact on that individual. Life is never the same again. How competitive is it out there, Holly? (laughs) Because every dollar counts, doesn't it? Oh, yes. And it is getting tougher and tougher. And honestly, the, the bushfire disaster last year and then COVID, it's extraordinary how tough it is. All of your listeners will understand the huge seismic shifts that have happened in their world, in their corporate world. In the charity sector, it has just been devastating. And I think, you know, we, we've really struggled through some of that because we've had to try and find new ways of doing things. Over the last 10 years, even before bushfires and COVID happened, what we were seeing was a trend where fewer people were donating every year, but they were donating more per person. And one other interesting thing is people don't just donate to one thing. People donate to probably an average of four things. Um, also, a couple of interesting pieces of data. Yep. More women donate than men. However, the quantity that women donate is lower but as a proportion of their earnings, it's higher. So you can see some of the shifts that you would absolutely understand as a result of just things like income and disparity, et cetera. But it does mean that there are fewer people giving 
and that's really tough. And it's an aging population. What we see with younger consumers, they want to be really involved. You're seeing the emergence of micro charities, people doing their own thing on GoFundMe pages that feel passionately about it. And that's wonderful. But that means you're seeing a dissipation and a big shift in the way funds are being generated across. And it's not just across Australia. That's a global trend. And how's the total pool this year? If you look at, we've had a thing, as you said, called the fires, but then we had COVID. How tough is it? Well, a really simple stat. Community fundraising, which is literally the grassroots stuff, which honestly has been our bread and butter from day one. If you think about the way cricket um, operates in Australia, it's it's fundamental to life here. Absolutely. It's just part of what you do with your mates. So grassroots fundraising has always been really critical. It disappeared. It literally disappeared overnight because people couldn't congregate. They couldn't get together. They couldn't host a high tea. They couldn't do a sausage sizzle. You know, so... Um, it was really tough. We are beginning to see that come back, but we're also beginning to see it come back in a very different way because one of the other trends that's happened in the last six months has been the disappearance of cash. And of course, if you think about how many people would give ad hoc, Mm -hmm. it would normally be chucking a couple of gold coins into a bucket somewhere. And that can't happen any longer, partly because you don't have volunteers standing on the street because there are all sorts of issues around volunteer protection and interaction and knowing what that looks like. But also, nobody's got any cash. Nobody's carrying any cash. So we've had to really pivot, there's that word, very, very quickly, um, and try a whole bunch of stuff. So what's been, one of the things I've loved about this period, honestly, has been this huge kind of shift into innovation. And it's lower risk because we don't have a choice. So you don't have that kind of sense of, wow, this is a really big deal and we need to prepare for it. And honestly, the transition, let's have a test and learn and blah, blah, blah. It's not like that. You know, fail fast, fail cheap, try the next thing, make sure it's 80% good. I'm not interested in 100%, but let's learn from it every single time. So we iterate, we iterate, we iterate, we iterate. What's working, Holly? It's the online stuff. Honestly, it's about helping people to engage personally in their local community. One of the things that I think would make sense to everybody listening to this is a return to community. And that started with bushfires because everybody was impacted. And, you know, when we did the pink test last year, it was literally the weekend of disaster when particularly New South Wales was incredibly hard hit. And we at that point needed to find a way to really navigate that, knowing that you know, our volunteers at the Pink Test were going home and then having a barbecue for their local fireys. Because people who have purpose and passion, they don't just give in one way. And it's not necessarily just through cash either. So I think for me, actually, innovation is the big winner here. And I hope that we see that accelerating through this process. The other part for us is the way innovation is being embraced in the health service in a way that has not happened before because it seems so difficult to make it happen. And now, you know, telehealth services, which were supposed to be introduced over five to 10 years, suddenly have happened in a matter of weeks or months. And people don't have a choice. And when people don't have a choice about making change, They don't have time to regret too much of the stuff they're leaving behind. And suddenly they're seeing the benefits before they've had a chance to to kind of push against that shift. So quick adoption, quick recognition of benefits, quick understanding of how to make the next step, the next move. That's been one of the big wins out of all of this. Holly, how many nurses do you have? 
We have 154 nurses. Um, more than 70% are in rural and regional Australia. Okay. We have a dynamic model. We partner very closely with Deloitte. On a, we're very data rich. We're very much insight driven through data. So I have um, every interaction between a nurse and a patient in our database de-identified, I should reiterate. Yes. Um, but that helps us to really understand how our nurses work. What we can then do is we can map existing services nationally. Okay against demographic, incidents, a whole range of things. And that helps us to understand where nurses are needed. So we've got 154. We know we need 250 in total. Okay. So our gap's close to 100. And one of the biggest problems with COVID, of course, is you know we were on this, as I was saying earlier, going from this teenager to this young adult, we were yep. growing fast. Yep. Last fiscal, we were going to deliver more than 30% growth from a financial perspective. Wow. That's huge growth in terms of nurses. Absolutely. Bushfires, then COVID, we're now stagnant. In fact, holding the number of nurses is our challenge. And at one point, six months ago, we had a fairly sizable multi-million dollar hole in our P&L that we have had to go about solving for. And that doesn't just happen. So what we now know is we need to rebuild that foundation so we are rock solid from a financial perspective. We've always been very risk averse in terms of our investments, so we are very secure. I know that if we didn't deliver another dollar of fundraising today, we could last for two years supporting our existing nurses. Okay. And knowing that that's possible actually then buys you time to be able to grow your revenue streams yep. and to innovate. Yep. So what we now need to do is we need to get ourselves back onto a path where we're growing our revenue and we can start to close that gap. We can employ that 100 extra nurses and we can make sure that everybody in Australia who's impacted by breast cancer has the support of a nurse because we know what a difference it makes. We've got the data. 100 nurses, what time period are you giving yourself? Prior to COVID, we had hoped to have that done by 2024. Okay. Well, I say hoped, we'd planned, we knew we could do it. And if we're calling it a spade a spade, how much do you need to raise? Oh, we need to get to close to $40 million a year. Okay. And what are we tracking at the moment? Currently, we're tracking at close to 25. Okay. So there's a fairly sizable gap there. Um, honestly, at the moment, this year is literally just about mitigating our loss. We can't afford to have too many years of loss. So we need to get back to a place where we are in profit and we're able to place incremental nurses. So we've built that bridge. We understand what that looks like. What the bridge looks like to actually get to 250 nurses, I think we're probably going to be looking at 2026, maybe even 2028. And that really fundamentally depends on unemployment levels, consumer confidence, and how quickly the economy rebounds. Those are critical in determining what happens moving forward. After the GFC, it took three years for fundraising to come back to the level prior to GFC. This is worse. <laughs> so we know that we need to put a long-term plan in place. And part of my role as a leader is to be able to envisage what that looks like, help the team understand and see that world and inspire them to get there. Holly, is corporate partnerships still popular? Yeah. And honestly... Our long-term corporate partnerships are just so incredibly valuable because one of the biggest things that is challenging in charity world is um, the flow of revenue. So if you think about selling a product, it's very rare that a product will disappear overnight. It might A new one might appear overnight, yep. but your revenue stream is not necessarily going to disappear overnight. 
what you see is a lot of one-time givers in charity, yep. a lot of ad hoc activities, and you drive that through campaigns, etc. But essentially, that's not sustainable. Mm. So it's one of the reasons why we love people who give to us every month. Even if you just give us $5 a month, I would love that commitment because over the next five to 10 years, I can show you that that long-term investment is really going to deliver. So we have charity partners, corporate partners, who have been with us for 10 years plus, and they are just incredible, partly because we are really, really integrated in the way we strategically plan those partnerships. So the benefit that we deliver to them and to their employees, their people, and the impact that we have is really closely aligned. And we think long-term, we're always thinking about how we connect to every level of the organization. It doesn't matter where they are. It's not something that's held with one person. It's that genuine integration where you really know each other and that's how you optimize the impact. Look, it's wonderful to have somebody come and do a one-off event and we're super grateful when anybody chooses us for the first time. That's amazing. But actually, it's those long-term partnerships that enable us to plan in a way that many charities can't if you're constantly relying on ad hoc donations. Holly, I've got a couple of friends who have actually gone through a lot of distress through breast cancer and yeah. it's, it's horrific. But the first thing is, where do I start? <laughs> yeah. I go and see the local doctor. The doctor says, go and see a specialist. Yeah. I don't even know where. It's so confusing. Yeah. Where does the McGrath Foundation come into yeah. its, its role? Honestly, I'm so glad you've asked me this, Greg, because most people don't realize that actually our nurses are free. You don't need a referral. And they are there at any time. So from day one, or even if you're a loved one and you don't know how to talk to a friend or support somebody who is going through this, um, you can go onto our website and call our hotline. Pip, who is our wonderful telephone nurse, will be there waiting to take your call. Or you literally just type in your local postcode and your nearest nurse will pop up with her mobile number and you literally can call her then and there. And the earlier that somebody with a diagnosis connects with us, the easier it is for them and the better it is for them. So what I can show you with our data is that if a patient connects with our nurse in the first week of diagnosis, they will go to the emergency department twice less. They will see their clinicians and their allied health specialists twice less, and they'll spend 15 minutes less in every consultation. They will actively stay out of the hospital environment because they know the questions to ask. They can understand the language and they can make sense of the maelstrom that hits them when a cancer diagnosis occurs. And it is incredibly confronting. Life will never be the same again. And for those around them, it won't ever be the same because it changes the way you look at the world. It changes the way you look at your life. It changes the way you think about your relationships um, and what's important. So step by step, our nurses support people to make really good decisions based on their particular set of circumstances in their local environment with the services that are available. And our nurses will travel with the patient. So this is a really critical piece. So what I mean by that is when a nurse and a patient connects in their local environment, that nurse will stay with that patient from the day of diagnosis throughout treatment. They won't replicate. So there'll be a radiology nurse, there might be a surgical nurse, so they won't kind of step in. But what they'll do is they'll hand the person off to that surgical nurse, then bring them back, then take them back into the oncology space. And what that means is there's continuity. And one of the biggest issues for anybody who's had a chronic disease or a major diagnosis is understanding how to navigate the system 
super difficult. And it doesn't matter whether you're in public or private or a mixture of both. It's super difficult and our nurses will handle both. And the other part is you're constantly having to retell your story. (laughs) And the nurse becomes your private advocate. They become the person who can genuinely be your advocate in the medical setting. So in most cancer environments, there will be something that's called the MDT. So it's a multidisciplinary team meeting. And that's where each person is discussed. And in that meeting is all of the clinicians, all of the allied health, all of basically the entire team that supports a patient through their treatment. The nurse attends that MDT and is the voice of the patient. So I have been in an MDT um, where they were discussing a patient who had um, a form of breast cancer just diagnosed. And the surgeon basically said, right, well, we need to remove this fairly swiftly. And we recommend, right, she needs to go on to this drug and then we need to schedule her mastectomy X, Y, and Z. And the nurse said, actually, that's not going to work. She's got a holiday in November and she's really focused on, you know, her family life. She wants to make sure, et cetera, et cetera. And the doctor sort of said, well, that's just not going to be an option. You know, we need to get this done. And the nurse said, no, 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 you don't understand. She will choose not to have the surgery if you force it on her pre this holiday. So we need to find a solution that will support her to be able to live the life that she wants through that holiday and then come back for her surgery post. The really important part is that this nurse can represent a patient and her desires. And that's that sense of control when you're in a situation where really you're completely out of your depth makes a big difference. You know, I always think um, um, one of the things that's always been a guiding light for me in my corporate career has been the work of Tony Shea, who actually recently, unfortunately, died. And this idea of how do you deliver happiness? And there are four really clear remits around that. The first is having a sense of control. The second is a sense of progress. Third is a sense of community, having the people around you. And the fourth is purpose. And so when you get a diagnosis of cancer, like there is no control, there is the progress feels really unsustainable. It feels very chaotic. Your community is totally shifted. Sometimes your friends might not understand how to connect with you and talk to you about this. And purpose is suddenly upended because mm-hmm. what you believed about your life may now have been turned upside down. So the nurse is there to actually help all of those aspects, to be able to have those conversations. So what we say is they provide the physical, the psychological, and the emotional support, not just to the patient, but also to their loved ones. Special people. Yeah, honestly, they're extraordinary. I I am in such admiration. We often talk about being inspired by our nurses. You know, they are genuinely outstanding people. It always makes me laugh because in the corporate world, we talk so much about being consumer-centric. There is nobody on the planet more consumer-centric than a nurse. You know, they will will do whatever their patient needs. They're incredibly driven. So it's really interesting when we do... um, People engagement surveys, you know, you often look at one of the key engagement questions is I go above and beyond because of the organization I work for. Well, our nurses who always have incredibly high engagement scores, their answer is, of course, I go above and beyond, but I don't go above and beyond for the organization. I go above and beyond because of my patients. And that's a different step totally. So I think it's, you know, when I, I'm very lucky I get the chance to, well, I did and hopefully in the future, get the chance to travel the country and go to different environments and speak to nurses and patients and see what it looks like in those worlds. And honestly, it's just inspirational to see what they do. Any little stories you want to talk us through? Oh, so many. So um, 
Oh, goodness. We have examples of, um, I was at a hospital in Western Sydney not that long ago, where a woman who was um, in her early 60s, she wasn't terribly financially secure. She did shift work in a big supermarket. And essentially, she said if the nurse had not been there, she would not have completed her treatment because she wouldn't have adhered to that process. So she knows that that nurse saved her life because it meant that she actually stuck to the very tough path that is treatment. Another example is we had a woman with a single mother with four kids near Liverpool who um, unfortunately had real literacy problems. So she didn't even know how, she wasn't capable of being able to write down appointment times. It took our nurse 100 interactions with that patient to support her through her journey. Normally, 12 to 15 would be the number of interactions. Another one I love is actually from a a husband of one of our patients who came to an event of ours. And in fact, Tracy Bevan, our um, amazing ambassador, was speaking at that event. She'd never met this guy before. He comes running up to her and says, Trace, I need to give you a hug. And she's kind of like, okay, this is a very strange man in front of me. Okay, fine, go ahead. And uh, so he gave her a massive hug and, and he said to her, I can't thank you and the McGrath Foundation enough for my nurse. She saved our marriage. We didn't know how to talk about cancer. You know, I wanted to fix it. I'm her husband and I wanted to be able to do stuff to make her better. But it was her body and she needed to make those choices. And our nurse helped us understand how to communicate and how to make good decisions for us. So honestly, just incredibly grateful. And it's those stories, honestly, particularly for partners. I think it's personally very tough for partners. Now, I'm, I should say, before I tell the story, I'm not in this job because of my personal experience, um, but it does give me context. My mother had breast cancer. And um, she was she and my father very health literate. My father is a research physicist. So they understood, like they understood the language, they understood trials, all this kind of stuff. Um, but I really saw how they struggled. Mm. And I know that having a nurse would have made a world of difference to them, even just understanding how to talk to each other and support each other. So, you know, I really, we, we really encourage partners to talk as well because it's often incredibly tough for them. Yeah, what do you say? Yeah. How um, do you deal with it, right? Who do you talk to after that? Because it's, like you said, it's a minefield, isn't it? And a lot of people want to, don't want to open up either, do they? No, I think, you know, a lot of people say to us, what do I say to somebody? My friend's been diagnosed, somebody I care about very much, or somebody at work has been diagnosed. Yeah, right. What do I do? It doesn't kind of matter what you say as long as you connect. Like the words, it's, it's okay. You know, but it's not always talking about getting better. Mm -hmm. It's much more about, you know, is there anything I can do for you today? Or let me know if you ever want a cup of coffee. I can tell you lots of people get bombarded with lasagna delivered to their front door because the local community want to help. And there are some fantastic apps out there where you can coordinate local teams to help you out, to support you on, you know, school runs or all sorts of things. One of the things that's quite interesting is that communities really support younger families and younger patients a lot because they're very connected through the school network. Often older patients have less of a community. And so it's even more important with the older patients to make sure that they're supported and connected into into their local network. Is it true that you don't turn patients away? No, 
honestly. You know, I know we don't have enough nurses, but, you know, you have to try and find a way to manage it um, because everybody is deserving. So what we do do is we don't insist that people have our support, but we do encourage everybody to come and have a conversation because it's about what's right for that patient in their world. Now, some people might feel very comfortable and confident about absorbing all of this information and being able to make good decisions. And maybe they'll only want to check in with a nurse once or twice during that process. But there are others who need much more comprehensive support. So that's why we try and dial up and dial down to make sure that each patient gets what they need when they need it. It's really interesting. We once had a patient who um, at one point wasn't terribly happy because she thought her nurse should have been there all the time phoning her every single day. And then when she realized that actually she was okay in certain phases and she realized that actually the nurse was then using those times to help people who were really in need, not, you know, not kind of okay, but would have been nice for a little check-in. She could see that the nurse was triaging and really optimizing her impact. And that's honestly, optimizing impact is something we talk about. One of the The bugbears in the charity sector is traditionally people have talked a lot about what they delivered, you know, so their output, not their impact. And what we're very focused on. So, yes, absolutely 154 nurses, but I'm much more interested in understanding how many hours did we give back to families so that they can have them cancer free or do the things that are important for them. So it's understanding impact. And honestly, I think it's the same for businesses. It's understanding like what is the change that you're affecting and what drives loyalty to you as an organization because of the value that that individual placed on that impact. But you're the CEO. How do you keep up or create the glue which drives that DNA? The second thing is during this period of COVID, how have you kept that communication? So I believe very firmly that you have to lead by example. And particularly in um, my sector and certainly with the McGrath Foundation, we have a very connected and um, high EQ environment. So it's really important to make sure that we are supporting all of our people because very often people come because they have a family experience of cancer. Mm-hmm. So you need to be aware of that background yeah. and support them through it. So EAP services, recognizing, you know, how you support people's mental health, making sure that there's good well-being practices in place, all of that is super important. One of the biggest differences for me is I'm a firm believer in walking the floor and talking to everybody. So I would do that every day. And actually that would take quite a bit of my time because I could then, it was also a way of seeding ideas, the way of just understanding how communication flows are working, where were their blockages, where were their issues. And it would enable me to kind of triage and kind of fix some of that stuff really quickly. Um, That disappeared. I mean, actually, because partly in March, when this all happened, my office is in North Sydney. And actually, because of family medical situation, we moved to Queensland. So I wasn't even locally remote. I was remote, remote. (laughs) Um, But honestly, when you have to do it, you do. And it's fantastic. So I have made sure that every single month I have at least one personal check-in with every single member of the organization. And that uh, the reason those moments are very productive is because um, is because we've already created the foundation of transparency and support. So mm-hmm. there is a lot of trust. They know that they can anybody in the organisation can come to me with anything. I think, though, the one single thing that made an enormous difference from a comms perspective that I'm never going to walk away from is I have a 15 minute huddle with my leadership team every morning at nine o'clock. So what does that mean? What that means is, and it's relatively small, so there are five of us, 
what it means is that every morning we set ourselves up for success that day. So it means this this ability to adapt and learn very swiftly okay. is replicated on a daily basis. So the first thing we all, you know, it never takes more than 15 minutes. Each of us have to talk about three things. The first is either something you're grateful for or something you've learned in the last 24 hours. The second is what is the one thing I need to do today to achieve to be successful? So what does success look like? And what help do I need from anybody on this call to make that happen or solve any issues? So you're constantly moving things forward. And that's a really important part of the process. And recognizing that, you know, there was new stuff coming, new information coming at us constantly. The other thing that's been really interesting that my leadership team have told me as a consequence of this is that they have a much better sort of enterprise-wide knowledge of the organization. Because all of the conversations that we've been having have been about the whole company, the whole organization. And that's given them much better um, context for any of the decisions that they're making on a daily basis. And they understand the kind of sentiment, the place that we're at. My role has very often been about what do I bring into the organization from the external environment. So what's the new information that's coming about? What's happening economically? What are the new government supports might be coming in? The latest McKinsey paper on how we do X, Y, and Z. So I try and take as much from the outside and bring it in to kind of feed into the organization, to kind of spur us on and inspire us in a way that they can respond to on a daily basis. Because it's got to be real. You've got to be able to do something with it. And honestly, those moments have created such, it, they're really special because now the relationship that we as a team have is incredibly supportive. You know, we've gone through a right-sizing process. We've had to address some really difficult challenges, made some tough, tough choices. We were all operating on 90% for a the whole organization. Everybody made a choice and supported us by going to 90%. Mm -hmm. Some people were on reduced hours. Uh, we had some people stood down for a good period of time. Um, so there were some really difficult periods. But that's my responsibility as a CEO. You have a duty of care to the long-term health of the organization and a duty of care to your people. And managing those two pieces at the same time through this process, that's been actually, for me, one of the greatest intellectual challenges I've ever had, you know, and actually really stimulating. So I'm somebody who... I do feel quite fortunate. I feel I'm somebody who thrives on driving transformational change. So I love problem solving. And so for me, this was the most complex problem we've ever had to deal with. And I also don't feel like I need to get it right every time, which I absolutely don't. But as long as we recognize when it's not working and find out what we need to do next, then that's absolutely fine. Holly, you've worked in both sides. You've worked in corporate and you've worked internationally. Yep. And now you're in social impact organizations. What's the difference? I think less than lots of people imagine, actually, honestly. And there are good and challenging things about both environments. Um, I used to work in a huge global organization where I there was a real collegiate sense globally. I had a huge range of peers that I could talk to confidentially in my network and that environment was amazing. Honestly, I had incredible investment in my learning and development, which was phenomenal. You know, to go to Wharton a couple of times, have amazing experiences like that, just incredible, that I never would have got in this sort of environment. But it also provided me with context. One of the things I now love is how fast I can move because we're a local organization. 
And I have an incredible chair and president and board, and they are very supportive of the direction. We have very clear delineation between the role of the board and the role of the management team, and it helps us to move fast. And that means that if we believe something is right, it's only a few conversations and being super clear about what that looks like, and we can make it happen. And that is just extraordinary because sometimes, you know, I've worked for, my job prior to this was running Clinique across 14 countries, huge business, thousands of people, um, also in turnaround phase at that point, trying to reach new consumers using new technology. So huge transformation, but it's slow. It's so much slower. And there are multiple priorities. So you can't do something in one area because it might not work for another market. So you've got to always find, navigate that path through a whole bunch of complexity. Whereas now it's really very simple. And I love that, that speed that we can react to certain things. Well, I was going to say, where do you spend most of your time then? In terms of what I do yeah. within the organization. Is um, it always within or is it without? Where do you spend the majority of your time? Increasingly more out. Okay. So in that first phase, when I joined the organization, you know, and we're going from that teenage phase, yeah. like the first thing we need to do is kind of set up a clear roadmap of what we wanted. So we reset our midterm strategy and we're really clear how we're going to meet our mission. Because although we were growing double digit, the need for nurses was growing faster than we were. So the sense was we're growing, it's fantastic, but we're never going to reach the the pinnacle of the mountain. So how do we reset the strategy? So the first goal was to, okay, let's do that. And that was very clear. In fact, we had, um, our strategy was over four years. So we had a get set moment. That was the first year. Get going was in the second year. Get faster and then get there. And we like to use, we try and synthesize things down. So our midterm strategy is on one page and it's always about clarity. For all of us, we know how incredibly difficult it is to synthesize things down. Absolutely. In my organization, I say that I own three things. So I own strategy, I own the PL, and I own people and culture. And then what I do is I make sure that the team around me has a great deal of diversity and different skills that enables us to approach what we need to do in many different areas. Um, you know, I have an incredible nursing director, uh, Jane Mahoney, who has been running that program for a number of years now. And she leads some of the research work that we do. So we have just, you know, when we started, we just funded nurses. Now we actually have created the McGraw model of care, which is a gold standard global model for supportive care nursing. And that is something that we know not only is gold standard in Australia, we know it's gold standard internationally. And so that is our IP. You know, when I started, we had this amazing cohort of nurses, but we didn't actually effectively own anything. And so if you're going to really drive impact, one of the things you have to do, of course, is be really clear about where's your IP. And so we have just launched that and that's super exciting and we're rolling it out to all of our nurses and we know by doing that, the consistency of supporting care will be elevated across the country. So if I'm stuck out of back of nowhere, this yep. big country of ours, how are you going to help me? You get on the phone, absolutely. And actually telehealth is also making a massive difference. Okay. Prior to COVID, telephone support, no matter where you were, is what normally happened. There were some states, for example, in WA, where telehealth has been embraced more. Same with Queensland, just because of the vagaries of distance, you know, and how the population is spread. 
actually, one of the real benefits for us in COVID in the health system has been the adoption of telehealth, mm. because actually, we're now really able to support people incredibly well. And I'm sure we, and we've seen it on the fundraising side of things, people are much more available because they're not spending time traveling. So actually, we've been able to access people that we've never been able to access before. Um, I was doing a kind of morning tea, virtual morning tea with one of our corporate partners the other day. And rather than it just being a morning tea for whoever is in the Sydney office, it was global. We had people from New York, we had people from Hong Kong, you know, from all over the world who dialed into this. And so this technology has been absolutely fantastic in helping us connect. And it's exactly the same for the nurses. So patients are also now feeling more comfortable with it. So one classic example is now you don't need to have a paper prescription. You can now have it digitally sent to your local pharmacist. People are now realizing you don't have to have a face-to-face consultation, which requires a couple of hours potentially to go to your GP, go and get something. It can be book a call, 15 minutes, done. So productivity is improved. You know, there are so many different outcomes are improved. I do think one thing we have absolutely learned is that, you know, it's really good for the first meeting to be face-to-face if at all possible. Yeah. Because establishing a relationship and building that interaction and trust, you know, if you can do that in person, that's fantastic. But once that's established, then technology is an incredible enabler. Ollie, what about the actual, the actual nurses? These are an inspiring bunch of people. Mm-hmm. But day in, day out, they're at the coalface. And it's not necessarily the greatest of news they're hearing or discussing every day of the yeah. week. How do they deal with it mentally? How do you guys support them? Because we never hear about that side of things. Yeah. These are our unsung heroes totally. doing the best thing out there, but they must go through some pretty low times themselves. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the pressure on the health service across the board has been so, I mean, it's just been enormous. And I think, you know, it's a shared experience in each local environment because you think about the way the pandemic has impacted different environments. It's not the same thing nationally. It's not the same thing even across a state. So each local environment, what we need to make sure we do is that we support our nurses appropriately in each of their environments. One thing that we did pretty soon after I arrived was that um, uh, nurses don't have clinical supervision written into their contracts. So one of the things that we did for our nurses was that we wrote it in so that all of our nurses have proper clinical supervision. We also have a cohort of what we call clinical leaders. So these are active McGraw nurses who also work a couple of days a week to mentor and support nurses. Oh, okay. So they're the first point of call to just, you know, if you just need to sound off about something or you just need a little cry or whatever it might look like, you know, that's a really important structure and support network. But the other thing, because we actually are responsible for all of their professional development, that is also true of their well-being support. So we create modules. Um, we've also done webinars with specialists in how to deal with the current COVID situation so that we are giving them the tools and the skills to understand, first of all, how to approach it, but also know that they're not alone. Actually, one of the really amazing benefits from COVID and this new telehealth network and all of us working remotely is that our nurses feel much more part of the group because they were always remote yeah, and right. always connecting remotely. Mm. So now they're connecting with us in the same way that we're all connecting. It doesn't, the kind of us in the office and them in the real world, shall yep. we say, yep. that's all been broken down. 
And actually, that's one of the things the nursing team, the team who actually manages the cohort of nurses and does all their professional development, said they never want to walk away from because their relationship with the nurses and that sense of team is so much stronger than it was before we went into this. You started the conversation, Holly. Did you say one in seven? Yes. One in seven women will be diagnosed. So that's 55 people a day. Okay. How many people are doing tests during COVID? Oh, um, you may have seen in the news that actually lots of screening processes for chronic diseases have not been where they need to be. Yeah. Um, for breast, there's been a 37% reduction in breast screening. That's incredibly concerning mm. for a couple of different reasons. And I also have to say, I don't want people to make assumptions as to why that screening hasn't happened. Yes, absolutely, some people have been concerned about going into medical environments. But honestly, the vast majority of it has been incredibly altruistic. People have been really worried about clogging up the system, believing that there are people who are far more in need. So they've chosen not to go and have their screening because they thought, well, there are so many others who need support. So our message now is you need to go and get yourself screened. We believe this somewhere in the region of 8,000 people who potentially have breast cancer who haven't been diagnosed. And that's very concerning because one of the reasons we have such fantastic data and stats and results in Australia is because of early detection. And that's partly because of the screening process. It's also partly because we, you know, we send out very strong messages about monthly checks. Um, one really important thing is some of the shift around that is it's not about lumps. It's about any change in your breasts. Oh, really? Yeah. So it can be soreness, it can be inflammation, it could be a change in texture of the skin. Um, it can be all sorts of things. So the point is, um, and we like to have a bit of fun at the McGraw Foundation. So we say, if you grow them, you need to know them. So it's really important that you do that on a monthly basis. Yep. And also, if you've got a partner, make sure you know theirs as well, because the important part is recognizing change. And if you see change, you should always get it checked. And that's the important part. So if we can all do that for ourselves and each other, that is going to give us the earliest chance of catching breast cancer. When does someone start thinking about it, Holly? Is it after 50, before 40, 30, 20? There's so much confusing information. When do you start looking at it and taking it seriously? The screening process starts at 50, and that's when that you get old? your mammograms. Is that too old or is that right? <laughs> Statistically, because, statistically, yeah. you're always going to that. That's where you're going to. That's where you're moving into the more of the danger zone. Okay. So you're much more likely to get uh, breast cancer as you get older. Okay. When you're younger and you get breast cancer, it's devastating in a different way because for any person, cancer is devastating yes. and will, you know, upend their life. For a young person, though, for a young woman, for example, it might mean fertility questions. You know, so it can have huge implications for their life. And there's no point in screening all 24-year-olds because the incidence level at 24, you would clog up the system with 20-year-olds who are absolutely fine. So that's why screening comes in at 50. Now, if you are concerned, if you have family history, if you think you're a high-risk person, then it may be that you actually start screening much earlier. So in my instance, my mother had breast cancer in her 60s. She had a fairly aggressive form and I was 39 when she died. And so from the age of 39, when that had happened, I have annual mammograms and ultrasounds because I'm, I'm deemed high risk. And so that's why understanding family history is important, but also potential other risk factors around, um, you know, <laughs> So there are things like um, if you are overweight, if you smoke, 
If you're a heavy drinker, really? there are multiple factors. Yeah. If okay. you want to know more about risk factors, go and have a look at the Cancer Australia website. Okay. They update them all the time and it helps you make good decisions about the choices you make with your life. So wellness is really important. You know, your general health and fitness is absolutely part of prevention. Big couple of days coming up, Holly. Oh, it's enormous. I love this time of year. Honestly, it's just, I, and I love it for a number of different reasons. Um, because it's the time that the whole of Australia gets behind us and stories emerge left, right and centre. And you just see the most extraordinary people doing incredible things that touch your heart. And seeing that support is just amazing. Now, this will be my fourth pink test. Okay. And my goodness, have we experienced many different ones? Um, you know, uh, two years ago when we had the ashes and we had the best year ever, I seem to remember it was quite warm that year, but went to five days, which we always love, by the way, because we make quite a lot of money normally through gold coin donations. But we made about $1.7 million that year. And that was the highest we'd ever made. And that's a sizable chunk of our revenue every yeah. year. Okay. But honestly, it's also the time when we have the more eyeballs on us than at any other time. It's also where a lot of our reputation is reinforced. And if we get it wrong at that time, that would be a disaster. So what goes on behind the scenes? What's, what's the preparation up to the test? It, honestly, every year it feels like it's almost one, one finishes, you start thinking about the, is that the right? next one. Yes. How far out is it? Because there is so much that you learn each time um, that you do that you want to capture. Okay. You want to make sure that you do really well the next time. Then it really starts to ramp up uh, August, September time, mm -hmm. partly because off the back of the pink test, we then run pink stump stays. So the second half of the pink test is all about recruiting local communities to run their own pink stump stays to raise money. So we normally aim for around you know, a couple of million dollars raised at the pink test, but there's often a thousand community matches that happen afterwards also raising another million dollars. So although the pink test itself is one and a half, two million, the total program is closer to three each year. Um, and Pink Stumps Day tends to launch in September. So we're always looking, you know, it's, it's really quite a long lead time. The actual pink test moment itself, the recruitment of volunteers starts a couple of months out. You know, we have hundreds of volunteers that come in and do a session each time. Um, and it's incredible to see that support coming through. The logistics of what it means to run that sort of event is enormous. The partnership that we've now had with Cricket Australia and the SCG Trust is phenomenal. You talk about good corporate partnerships. Yeah. Honestly, they are the best. And what I love is that in the last two years, um, when we have been particularly challenged last year with the bushfires yep. and COVID, yep. the way the teams have worked together to kind of say, how do we do this differently? How, how do we take the essence of the pink test and really bring it to life in a way that makes sense in the context of you know, whatever's happening at this point in time? Last year, it was understanding how do we sit alongside what was happening for everybody with the bushfires? You know, and it was something we felt, you know, 70% of our nurses are in rural and regional environments. Cancer doesn't stop just because there's a bushfire or there's a pandemic. Yep. So, you know, our nurses were trying to help people, you know, uh, get to their radiation appointments while their husbands are protecting their properties from fire. Yeah, you know, right. we had stories with lots of our patients in that sort of circumstance. There was one extraordinary one, actually, from somewhere down the south coast of somebody paddleboarding to their chemo appointment. You know, I mean, just extraordinary people because they couldn't get out through the normal roads. So 
what we realized, and I go back to when I was talking about people who give don't just give to one organization. Yes. They give to multiple organizations and they connect with community. And we are embedded in those communities. So all of our stories were about we stand side by side. We understand what this looks like. We're experiencing ourselves. Whatever you can do for whatever means most for you in your heart of hearts, we encourage you to do that. Whatever you choose to give to us, we're extremely grateful for. And what could have been an enormous reputation disaster, imagine going from, you know, a news bulletin about a hideous situation and somebody losing their house and goodness knows what else. Yes. Straight to a fundraising ask for breast cancer nurses. That would have been awful. Yeah. So we had to make sure that that didn't happen. Um, and honestly, I'm exceptionally proud of the team, particularly, honestly, the way Glenn and Trace went out and spoke from the heart about what it meant for them and how they connected with that community. You know, I think that um, we learned an awful lot from last year. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm so glad we did because this year is just even even more challenging, you know. Um, the first thing was, were we even going to have a big well, test? I was say, the ambiguity is unbelievable, isn't yeah, it? It really is. Um, and that's why I'm so excited that the day is here and we finally get to go and do what we know we can do and connect with this community, which is just extraordinary. But it will look very different. I don't know. Um, we're not going to have a full crowd. No. We know we're not going to have any volunteers. So uh, nobody's going to be rattling tins. There are going to be no gold coin donations. You know, we're not going to be able to run our Jane McGrath high tea on Jane McGrath day. We can't go on to the pitch. So we can't do the unveiling of the silk. We can't do the handover of the pink baggies. All of those traditional moments, which have been incredibly important and started in year one for the first year won't happen. So we've had to try to find other ways to make this work. So one of the key things that we're actually asking people to do is help us to keep pink in the pink test. You know, with only a limited crowd, if you're dialing in from TV, yeah. it might look like any other cricket match. Yeah. And one of the things we want to make sure we do is we keep the pink in the pink test. Exactly right. We've got a couple of different ways yep. that people can do that. So if you haven't been lucky enough to get one of the limited number of seats available this year, um, actually you can buy your own pink seat and help us fill the SCG so, with pink seats. So how does that work, Holly? How am I going to do that? So you can make a donation online okay. and you can buy a seat and hopefully we will fill the SCG in terms of pink seat. And I'm doing that via your website. How yes. am I going to get there? Yes. That's pinktest.com.au. Yep. You can see exactly what you can do. Very easy there. The other thing that we would love for people to do is because they're not able to get involved in the same way. Not only did we have, you know, a full house every day and so many people coming into the environment and celebrating and taking part with us. There were also huge numbers of events in the community which also aren't able to take place. So what we're saying is have a pink party at home with your loved ones and your family. Bring the pink test to your home. Have an event at your house whilst you're watching the cricket. You know, um, Pink up. Join us on social media. We're going to have lots of content out there, lots of celebration. And it's really about feeling part of the community from your community and connecting in that way. Holly, if you put all your imagination and effort into this, is there a chance you could raise more? I'd love to think so. So we've set ourselves. What's your target? Come on. Yeah. We've set ourselves a oh, fairly aggressive target, but it's still, you know, it's not as much as we've done before. We've set ourselves a million dollars. Okay. What would be the dream come true? What number would you really Honestly, want to get? Honestly, if we could smash one and a half. Yep. 
because that would actually be the second highest number we'd ever delivered. And what's the highest you've delivered? 1.7. When was that? Ashes. Great. Always okay. ashes. Okay. The second best is always India because the Indian community here is just stellar. Everybody gets involved and the energy and the passion is extraordinary. Honestly, we work very closely with the Indian community for multiple reasons. You know, Glenn spends quite a lot of time in India running coaching schools. And in fact, as some people may well know, he's yes. actually in India right now yeah. operating virtually for us, which is what many of many people are doing. But one of the things for us why the Indian community is really important is actually screening rates for the Indian community are even lower. So we really need to do a good job encouraging Indian community to come and get screened. So that's why it makes it an extra special year. You know, we love the color also, the color that the Indian community kind of brings to this. And that energy is just fantastic. Also, cricket's not bad. Cricket's not bad. <laughs> the cricket's not bad. We always love it when India plays Australia. So what are the pubs doing? Are they... Uh putting up pink around the pubs. Is that something you're going to encourage a little bit more, as you say? I yeah. may not be able to get to the test, but I still want to catch up my friends. Yeah. What should the local publican out there in the bush or in Sydney do? Absolutely. So we've been running a kind of pink up campaign. Um, and so absolutely, whatever your environment, pink it up, you know, pink up your pub. We've had pink pints in the past. We've had pink burgers in the past. You know, there are lots of fun ways to also attract people into your environment to come and celebrate. One of the things that we love about working in the McGrath Foundation is that breast cancer, because it affects so many people and everybody knows somebody, yes. people connect with it. And so if you're trying to create a community event, there is a real sense of community when you bring them together. So one of the things that we see this year when we know that money is tight mm -hmm. is we see that one of our roles is to help communities come back together. You know, we see that with our nurses, how they help communities and, and networks to form. And what we hope to do with some of our events is also to help communities connect. Okay. We've got five five days ahead of us. Yes. Once that done and dusted, what's the next big event? <laughs> what? for, for, for at least a couple of days. <laughs> what What's next? Because it is all about sustainability, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, otherwise, you're going back to those donations, which are in peak and troughs, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So our goal is always to build these long-term relationships with people. And that's why the pink stump stays after the pink test is also really important. So honestly, we hope lots of people sign up for that too. So if you are going to have a pink party during the pink test, fantastic, because you're watching the cricket. Afterwards, why don't you bring the magic of the pink test to your local community and host your own pink stump stay? And there we have a whole program to support communities around hosting a pink stump stay, which includes, you know, you can have a, a, a bake sale, you have an afternoon tea, all sorts of things that brings the community together and also fundraises at the same time. So there are lots and lots of different ways. And I think, I think what I really want to just help people understand is it, it doesn't matter if you feel like you can't give what you've given in the past, you know, uh, it's tough for so many people out there right now. And confidence, although it is bouncing back, and that's super exciting to see, yep. we know that lots of people are still struggling. Unemployment's not where we want it to be. Yep. And so even if you can't give what you want or you can't give, that doesn't mean to say your involvement isn't incredibly valuable for us. So just being part of this, helping us celebrate, helping us spread the word, helping people understand what the nurses do, how you connect with them, helping people understand that they can just go onto our website and find their local nurse. All of that is really valuable. And we are so grateful for whatever that support looks like over this period. And if I can donate, how do I donate? Well, 
there are quite a few ways, but okay. the easiest way to do it is you can literally just go onto the website, semagrafoundation.com.au yep. and donate here. Honestly, if you would love to help us over, um, to help us with that longevity, we would love for you to commit to donating on a monthly basis because mm -hmm. that helps us because we're funding effectively people contracts. Um, so if you can do that, we would be exceptionally grateful. If you would like to be involved in other ways, give us a call. We're really happy to have as many people involved as possible. So there are multiple ways. Jump on a website, lots of different ideas. And um, yeah, we'll happily take your cash because we know what it means for those patients and their loved ones. Holly, I've just pulled out my three credit cards and I'm donating as fast as I can. And the reason I'm doing that, Holly, the passion is just unbelievable. But more than that, I think you mentioned purpose earlier. Yeah. What is purpose to you? Oh, um, honestly, I think people make purpose way too complicated very often. You know, we hear a lot about purpose right now. Um, I think you can see purpose in the smallest actions and how you influence others. Often, you know, I, I've seen examples of big organizations spending a fortune with management consultants to define their purpose and then roll out a huge campaign. And actually what's missing is that human connection with their people or, quite frankly, their consumers <laughs> and the impact that they're having further down the line. In our sector, we're much closer to that impact. And so the link between purpose and impact is is often, is a much shorter journey. So, I mean, I can remember working in the commercial world and helping our finance guys understand what was their role in helping a 13-year-old buying their first pot of makeup. You know, that's that connection to purpose can sometimes be quite a long way away. Whereas for us, all of us, every volunteer, every corporate partner, we can put them in contact with our nurses. They can talk to patients. Patients Patients' partners, patients' children, patients' parents can tell them what it means to have had the support of a nurse. And that makes it real. And that makes every single person involved in our world recognize the power that they have to influence others' lives. I had never, it's really interesting, before I worked in this sector, I had done lots of kind of management consultancy, kind of training, leadership skills, all this sort of stuff. Lots of conversations around, you know, uh, what am I doing with my life, all that sort of stuff. I'd never actually really defined what purpose meant for me. Yeah, and they're always struggling for it, aren't yeah. they? And honestly, for me, it is as simple. And I realized when I'd done it, I realized that actually it took me back to my granny. Because what it made me realize was that actually my purpose is to have a positive influence at both a micro and a macro level with people. So that means I can do something every day, which makes a difference. And that constantly then feeds how I feel about my commitment to the community, my commitment to driving positive change. And I think if you're close to, you know, if you're much closer to being able to deliver on your purpose on a daily basis, you can then also embrace the massive, you know, big hairy goals, your big your B hags. You can also go for that. And, and you know, I'd say, right, McGrath Foundation purpose. Yeah. One of the things that I loved when I joined this foundation is that Glenn and my chairman, John, who's incredible man, um, great partnership. They said to me, okay, first of all, we need to understand how to accelerate where we're at to meet our mission in a much shorter time frame. Super clear. Then 
help us define what our purpose will be and what the foundation should stand for in 10 years. And that for me was exceptionally exciting because on a daily basis, we're making a difference to people's lives. I am, I know I'm making a difference to people's lives, but I'm also able to craft through identifying what our IP is. And what we now know is we're experts in supportive care nursing. So in 50 years time, not Mm. just 10, but in 50 years time, How do we have a macro impact on society as a whole through the kind of model of care that we deliver? And you're thinking that far out? Of course. Absolutely. You're selling that dream to everybody working there? Yeah, because we all are incredibly ambitious. And, you know, ambition and energy and positivity and a sense of progression and being part of, you know, I I sometimes joke, you know, this is something we're going to be telling our grandchildren about. Like imagine being part of something that you are so proud of that you will be telling your grandchildren. I hope that this pink test will, which, you know, has come out of so much challenge. I hope that all of us will go, I am so lucky to have played a role in this. And I know what I did every single day and in all the weeks leading up to it that made this happen. And by the way, enabled us to smash that fundraising target. Absolutely. Holly, if you were to look back at that young Holly, in India, which is quite relevant, with your granny, what advice would you give her now? I would say, have every conversation, open every door, create as many opportunities as you can, because you never know where it will lead. You have no idea what you're capable of. And remember, you have the right to always change your mind, because forever is only forever for now. And that's something that has been really important for me. When I moved here from the UK, you know, um, Deej, my husband, sort of said, yeah, this is permanent move. And I went, absolutely, it's forever, for now, you know. I reserve the right to change my mind. But it helps you to kind of commit to something permanently whilst knowing that circumstances might change. You know, subsequent to that, we've lived in Hong Kong for three years. Then we've come back. Who knows what the world's going to throw at us? And the decision I make today is the best possible decision based on the facts that I have. But you can't possibly make the best possible decision if you haven't explored all the opportunities. And that's why for me, having conversations with people is absolutely fundamental. And it's what I love. It's what I enjoy. And it's also how I drive connection. Um, So just talk. Holly, I've got to say it's been an absolute privilege today. Oh, thank you. Me too. This has been awesome fun. Can we do it again next week? (laughs) After the test match. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe a couple of nights good sleep first, (laughs) then I'm back for more. (laughs) On that, thank you very much for joining us today. No, thank you so much. Um, Honestly, to have this incredible platform, I am so grateful. We are so grateful at the Foundation to have this platform to just help us connect with as many people as possible so that they can get the support and care that they need. So on that, you've been listening to No Limitations and put the hand in the pocket and give generously. <laughs>